Part 5 of Isle of the Undead by Lloyd Arthur Eschbach. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Part 5 The End of the Island. Out on the plain, he sprinted through the ghostly forest. He knew he had no time to spare, knew that soon the march of torture would begin knew that if Vilma were within the castle, she must answer the summons of Corio's horn. Even now, light glowed faintly in the high, square windows. That horn! At the foot of the steps, he stopped short. If he heard the horn, he too must answer. He dared not risk it. With impatient fingers, he tore a strip of cloth from his shirt, rolled it into a cylinder, and thrust it into his ear. Another for the other ear, and he darted up into the castle. A sweeping glance revealed no one, only the murky glow of the altar fire, and the wraiths of smoke pluming upward toward the shadowed roof. Wishing now that he had brought a weapon from the galley, Cliff crossed to the opening in the wall. He stood at the top of the steps, listening, then cursed silently, as he remembered that he could hear none but very loud sounds. He saw nothing, so he hastened down into the corridor. His steps were swiftly stealthy as he moved toward Corio's room. He was past the first branching passage when a sixth sense warned him of someone's approach. He ran swiftly to the next fork, then paused within its shelter and glanced back, saw five red-cowled figures glide along the tunnel and vanish up the stairway. Cliff frowned. With the vampires in the great hall, Corio must soon follow leading his victims to the blood feast. He drew back deeper into the shadows. His groping hands touched something in the dark, round and hard, like a keg. Curiously, he investigated. It was a keg, and there were others. A sandy powder trailed to the floor from a crack in one of them. Thoughtfully, Cliff let it run through his fingers. Gunpowder. Of course. He had heard Corio mention pirates and their treasure. And this had been their cache of explosive. An idea was forming. He looked up to see a shadow pass the mouth of the tunnel. He crept forward and peered out. He saw the black-hooded figure of Leon Corio striding along, saw him enter the room where the passengers of the Ariel lay. In a breath, Cliff was down the corridor to Corio's room. A tarnished silver candelabrum shed faint light through the chamber, and by its flickering glow he searched for Vilma, thoroughly, painstakingly, futilely. He stood in the center of the room in indecision, 
his forehead creased with anxiety. If only he could find her, he'd know how to plan. He ran his hand through his hair helplessly, then heard, very faintly, the luring note of Corio's horn. She must answer that summons, unless Corio had her tied somewhere. His best chance of finding her lay in the hall above. On the wall still hung the mate of the cutlass he had used to free Vilma. He wrenched it down and ran out into the corridor. The last of the naked marchers was disappearing up the stairway. Now the horn note died, and he could feel, more than hear, the rumbling bass of the dirge from the depths below him. He ran the rest of the distance along the passageway and mounted the steps, two at a stride. He looked into the torture hall. As on the previous night, Corio stood far back, close to the wall in which Cliff crouched. The arms of the master were raised high. Raised, Cliff knew, though he could not hear it, in a blasphemous incantation. And then he saw something that sent a crimson lance of fury crashing through his brain. Vilma, stripped like the rest, stood with the other victims at the foot of the long steps. Her body gleamed pinkly in contrast to the pallid drabness of the half-dead automatons, and she held her head proudly erect. But from where he stood, Cliff could see the side of her face, and it bore a look of terror. He could see Corio's face, too, and he was looking at the girl, baffled fury glaring from his eyes, as though she were there against his will. Cliff's first impulse was to fling himself out there with his cutlass and hack a way to freedom for Vilma and himself but cold reason checked this folly. Such a course could end only in death. Motionless, he watched the scene before him, his brain frantically seeking a plan with even a ghost of a chance of succeeding. The gunpowder. There was enough of the stuff below to blast this entire castle into the hell where it belonged. Hastily, he retraced his steps to the tunnel in which he had found the kegs, plucking the torch from its niche in the wall as he passed it. He held it high above his head as he examined the contents of the broken keg. Unmistakably gunpowder. Thrusting the cutlass beneath his belt, he clutched a handful of the black dust. Then, crouching close to the floor, he drew an irregular thread through the passageway toward the stairs. Once he returned for more powder, but in a few minutes the job was done. At the foot of the steps where the trail ended, he touched his torch to the black line and watched a hissing spark snake its white-smoked way back toward the powder kegs. An instant he watched it, then sprang up the stairs, He'd have to move fast. With a hideous howl, he darted into the hall, his cutlass above his head. 
Corio spun about, and it was his last living act. A single sweep of the great blade sheared his head from his neck, sent it rolling grotesquely across the floor. For three heartbeats, the body stood, with a fountain of blood spurting from severed arteries. Then it crashed. Coolly, Cliff leaned over the twitching cadaver, ignoring the bedlam on the stairs, the horde sweeping down toward him, hurling aside the waiting humans. He pried open clutching fingers, seized a twisted silver instrument, and raised it to his lips. The mass of undead were almost upon him, the murky light glinting on menacing blades when Cliff blew the first note. The note of sleep. He tried again, hastily, and it was the right one. At the doleful, soothing sound, the undead halted in their tracks, halted and melted into nothingness before his eyes. But now those other five, in their robes of bloody red, they were charging, and even though they were unarmed, Cliff felt a stab of fear. They possessed powers beyond the human, powers a mortal could not combat. He braced himself and waited. At the bottom of the steps, they stopped, ranging in a wide half-circle. The central monster, the master, flung up his arms in a strangely terrifying gesture, and Cliff saw his carmine lips move in a chant which he could not hear. Something, a chilling presence, hovered about him, seemed to settle upon him cloaking him with the might of the devil himself. That unheard incantation continued, and Cliff felt a cold rigidity creeping through every fiber, slowly freezing his limbs into columns of ice. With a mighty effort of will, he flung himself toward that accursed drinker of blood. And at that instant... A terrific detonation rocked the ancient building, and a cloud of smoke and flame burst from the opening in the wall. Cliff was hurled from his feet, rolled over and over, and crashed against the wall by the awful concussion. The cutlass and silver horn sent whirling through the air. Dizzily, he staggered to his feet, crouching defensively. Sounds came to him clearly now. The explosion must have jarred the plugs from his ears. He scanned the room, saw the unclad humans scattered everywhere, most of them lying still and unconscious. He saw Vilma rising slowly. Then he looked for the monsters in red. Startled, he saw them rushing toward the opening in the wall to vanish in its smoke-filled interior. Why did they... Then he knew. Down there, somewhere, were their graves. Graves rent and broken by the explosion. Graves threatened by the flames. 
and panic had seized the vampires, fear of the death which would result with exile from their tombs. Unsteadily, Cliff crossed to Vilma. She saw him coming and flung herself sobbing into his arms. He crushed her lithe form close, and another explosion, more violent than the first, sent a section of the stone floor leaping upward as though with life of its own. Clinging to Vilma, Cliff managed to maintain his footing, though the floor bucked and heaved. A snapping, booming roar, and a great chasm opened in the floor. A breathless instant, and a segment of the stone stairs, rumbling thunderously, dropped out of sight into a newly formed pit. With it went the blasphemous altar and its phosphorescent fire. Deafened, stunned, momentarily powerless to move, Cliff's mind groped for an explanation. It seemed incredible that gunpowder could cause such havoc. And the swaying of the floor continued. The thick stone walls shook alarmingly. Suddenly he understood. An earthquake. The explosions had jarred the none-too-stable understrata of rock into spasmodic motion that must grind everything to bits. The island was doomed, and Earth would be better without it. If only they could reach the aerial first. New strength flowed through him, and, hugging Vilma close, he staggered toward the spot where he knew the door must be. Somehow he reached it and reeled down the broken stone steps. The plain of dead trees swayed like the deck of a ship in a storm as Cliff started across it. A gale had arisen and swept in from the sea, ripping dry branches from the skeleton growths and whirling them about like straws. Yet somehow, Cliff reached the crevice in the rock wall with his burden, reached the deck of the galley, crossed it, and won to the safety of the aerial. Minutes later, with diesel engines purring, they crept out through the narrow channel into the open sea. Ten minutes later, the Isle of the Undead lay safely behind them. Vilma had dressed, and now they sat together in the pilot house. Cliff had one arm about her and one hand on the wheel. And so, the girl was saying, while Corio carried you to that terrible old boat, I got loose. He hadn't tied me very tightly, and I slipped my hands free. I had to hide, and I could think of only one place that might be safe where he wouldn't think to look for me. I ran down to the room where those... those others lay. I undressed and buried myself among them. It was horrible, the way they sucked each other's wounds. Cliff pressed a hand across her lips. Forget that, he said, almost fiercely. Forget all of it, do you hear? She looked up at him and said simply, 
I'll try. They glanced back toward the black blotch on the horizon. The seismic disturbances continued, unabated. At that moment, they saw the barrier of rock, like a skull, split and sink into the sea. Beyond, cleansing tongues of flame licked the sky. They saw a single, jagged wall of the castle still standing, one window glowing in its black expanse like a square, bloody moon against a bloody sky. It crumbled. They turned away, and Cliff's arms circled the girl he loved. Their lips met and clung, and the Ariel plowed on through the frothing brine, bearing them toward safety and forgetfulness together. End of Part 5 End of Isle of the Undead by Lloyd Arthur Eschbach Recording by Louise J. Bell Sebastopol, California